This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. And I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor. This week, is Biden's approach to the war in Ukraine more calculating than it seems? Plus, how many of Ukraine's churches have been destroyed? And finally, 40 years on from the Falklands War, why are there still tensions over the islands? First up, in this week's cover piece, Matt Purple examines Biden's response to the situation in Ukraine, the good, the bad, and the gaffes. He joins us now with the founder of Political Human, Emma Bernal. Matt, in your cover piece this week, you argue that Biden's off-script remarks about Putin actually sum up uh, the entire Biden approach to the Ukraine crisis. Could you explain for our listeners why you think that is? Yeah, well, first of all, I just think there isn't a Joe Biden without the tendency to gaffe. I mean, it's almost the most determinative thing about him. He's always going to say something that's going to undermine the company line or that's going to pull the rug out from under himself a little bit. And I don't even think that's that controversial a thing to say. He's admitted that that as much himself. He said, I am a gaffe machine and, you know, power to him for for being aware of his flaws on that. But yeah, I mean, I, I... it was a candid remark, and I don't think it was necessarily a very destructive remark per se. I mean, I have a difficult time imagining how this ends unless Putin is taken taken out from within. It it just seemed like kind of a moment of honesty for him. Uh, but that being said, you know that honesty undermined what is at least has been a very cautious, very careful approach. I, I give him credit for that. I mean, he he's been very sherry so far about the way that he's handled this. I, I think he's done. You know, the conservative like me saying this, I think he's done a fairly good job. But then, of course, there's always that tendency to just crash down and to say something that that can you know disrupt the line. And I think that uh, that sums up his his approach pretty well. And Emma, one of the points that um, Matt makes in his piece is that despite the gaffes, Biden has nevertheless demonstrated what he calls a quality often lacking in foreign policy discourse, which is imagination. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think the American approach to this has been surprisingly imaginative and open to trying things. The openness about intelligence, for example, which has really set the agenda in stopping Putin's narrative taking hold, I thought was extremely against what I'm sure a lot of people would have considered to be the foreign policy norm and actually an imaginative and sensible approach to how this happened. I think it really does demonstrate a new approach that works better in the digital age that we hadn't seen in previous conflicts. But Matt, don't you think there's a case to be made that that these slips from Biden could risk accidentally stumbling into a uh, a World War Three situation with I mean, comments like that America would respond in kind if Russia used a chemical weapon in Ukraine. I mean, things like that. Does that not uh, worry you that his approach may not be as in control uh, as we might like? 
Not on that particular remark, because I think that most people are not going to hear that and think we're about to drop sarin gas all over Eastern Europe. I think that, you know, that there's a sense that this is just Biden going off the cuff. And of course, it's immediately corrected by his staff. I do take your point, though, in that I think that he could potentially say something that could be far more consequential, right? He could come out and, you know, have a gaffe that really does undermine the delicate diplomatic niceties that are so important to what is going on right now. I mean, it's a very fragile situation. He, he really could, you know, turn the gun on his own foot and get us in a lot of trouble. I'm not sure that's happened yet. You know, like I was saying before, I, I don't think it's fair to say that single remark completely undermined his entire European trip. I thought it was a very, very good trip overall. But I, but I do take your point. I mean, it, it is a very... It can be a scary thing having a president who doesn't always think before he speaks, especially when uh, the stakes could be nuclear as they are right now. And Emma, do we know much about what the American reaction to Biden's handling of all of this has been? I think the the American reaction has been similar to the American reaction to most things, certainly since the withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, when Biden's rating started to crash. America is a very divided country and there isn't one thing that's going to suddenly turn that around. Um, I've been thinking a lot about this, the sense of gaffe from Biden and how we would have responded had it been Trump and why it's different now and how I'd respond if it was Boris Johnson. For example, I was you know, very vocal about how his mistakes over Navazuddin Zaghari Ratcliffe when Foreign Secretary were really dramatically importantly bad. I think the difference between Biden and Trump, and I'm not going to say that his gaffes are better somehow because I'm some partisan, even though I blatantly am. But I do think the important difference, and I think um, Matt really makes this in his piece, is that the machinery is different under Biden. And that's what has mattered in terms of the leadership. What you've got underneath Biden is a bunch of people who have the experience and the capability to both do good foreign policy and deal with a gaff-prone president. Whereas under Trump, the machinery was very different and was entirely about supporting Trump and not about helping him through his mistakes. And uh, Matt, how much do you think the average American voter does care about foreign policy and I mean and these poor poll ratings that Emma just mentioned do you think they are related particularly to uh, his approach towards Ukraine or is it other issues in America you know soaring inflation and and so on? yeah I'm a big believer in kitchen table issues I think that it's only when you're able to afford groceries at the store it's only when you're able to pay off the credit card bill that you have I hate to call it the luxury but it is in some ways the luxury to worry about a place like Ukraine and right now, Americans are actually fairly gung-ho. I mean, they, they want Russia to, to back out of Ukraine. We've seen that in the polling. Uh, there's that old uh, streak of anti-Russian distrust that exists in America. You know, we, we never trust the Russians. It's that, you know, old Cold War sentimentality, I think. And, and that's very much applying here. But at the end of the day, I think what's notable is that this really hasn't helped Biden's approval ratings very much. And the reason for that is that, again, the price of a box of cornflakes is much higher than it used to be. And that is hitting people very directly. It's hitting them where it hurts. And Biden has been, I think, rather desperately trying to use one to try to obscure the other, you know, calling it a Putin price hike at the gas pump, for example, to try to blame it all on Putin, as though people don't know that gas prices have been going up for about a year now. And that some of that is is due to COVID, but some of that is also due to inflation. So, yeah, I mean, there's... I think a cynical attempt to try to use one to cover the other, but it hasn't really helped him. 
And I think, you know, it, it it's kind of amazing how little this has moved the political needle in some ways. I think the Republicans are still, at least if current trends continue, going to pick up in the midterms big time this year because of, of inflation and other domestic matters. And Emma, towards the end of Matt's piece, he says that it's obviously hard to claim that Putin invaded Ukraine because Joe Biden is president, but equally, Putin clearly wasn't deterred by Biden. Do you think that's going to be politically difficult for Biden in the midterms? I think for the same reasons that he's not seeing a Putin bounce, I don't think he's going to see a Putin drop in those terms. As Matt says, Americans are looking first and foremost at how much life costs right now. Now, I can tell Matt until the cows come home that the same thing's true in the UK. And we have, <laughs> we have a very different government. But equally, I will be using the government's economic troubles to campaign against them. So it'd be very unfair of me to ask Matt not to do the same <laughs> domestically where he is. So I think first and foremost, what Americans are going to vote on is the fact that you can afford a great deal less than you could do five years ago, four years ago, if, you, if you're looking at a midterm cycle. And that is something that is almost impossible for any politician to get over, no matter what the cause is and no matter what their answers. And Matt, in, in, in terms of America's reaction to, to Ukraine, I'm thinking about America's role as a kind of global power. Do you think uh, Biden is in a sense, despite his uh, cautiousness, as you describe it, despite that, do you think he is in a in a sense, the last of uh, that kind of era of Atlanticist politician. And if, if Biden weren't around, for example, if it were Kamala Harris or, or someone else in the Democratic Party who, who was president at this moment, do you think their reaction would have been extremely different? It's a great question, and I'm not entirely sure. Because like you say, Biden has really cut his teeth in, in foreign policy, that whole Atlanticist mentality. I mean, he was on the Foreign Relations Committee for a very long time. He's traveled all over the world. And I think even though, again, he, he's constantly slipping over his own tongue, I, I think that's given him some real experience, some real uh, necessary qualifications here. It, it's difficult to say how the next generation is going to deal with foreign policy, because on the one hand, America has been very much chastened by its wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and Syria and on and on, right? I mean, there's not that much appetite anymore for the kind of nation building that we were engaging in during the Bush administration. The country has moved on. And I think there's a sense that if NATO does send troops to, you know, Ukraine, wherever it might be, beefing up in Eastern Europe, those are mostly going to be our troops. You know, we feel that very viscerally. On the other hand, there's almost this a mentality that's informed by social media to just go in guns blazing, right? I mean, to Twitter was all over Joe Biden for not allowing through the MiG jets, for example, uh, which which Poland wanted to give them and, and the Biden administration rejected. Uh, Twitter was ap apoplectic for the most part over this. So there is that mentality too, this kind of internet social media impulse to just go ahead and, and do whatever it might be. I mean, there's kind of a disconnect between that and reality, I think. So it's a good question. I mean, Kamala Harris has woefully little foreign policy experience. She's a difficult read. Um, but I think it's going to be very interesting to watch the next generation of American politicians and see how they deal with foreign policy. Emma and Matt, thank you very much for joining. Next up, in this week's issue, Christopher Howes writes poignantly on the destruction of Ukrainian churches and about how Vladimir Putin, a man claiming to be a defender of Christianity, is now desperate to keep the images of destroyed holy sites out of the news. 
Christopher joins us now, along with the head of the Greek Orthodox Church in Great Britain, His Eminence Archbishop Nikitas Lulias. Christopher, many cities in Ukraine have been destroyed by Russia since the invasion began. Do we have a sense of how many religious buildings have been destroyed? It's very difficult to tell. I think that's one of the difficulties. For example, at Mariupol, really it was very difficult to get any pictures or reliable reports out for weeks. There are a couple of AP reporters who stayed on, and one of them took a picture of a ruined traditional Orthodox church there, which went round the world. And it's just standing there in the middle of desolation where some modern buildings have been destroyed by artillery and the trees have been turned into those sort of sticks that you remember from the First World War photographs. And there's a Ukrainian soldier with his iPhone taking a picture of the church and uh, its dome has turned into a sort of broken birdcage of twisted wire and the doors are blasted with the holy images of the saints, the patron saints on each side. So that's something that we saw by chance. And I saw by chance actually something at Erpin as well, where, if you remember, there was an incident in March where a mother and her two children were killed by... I think it was probably mortar fire, something like that. Uh, they were just trying to flee the place. And the photographs of the incident and some footage showed in the background an ordinary little parish church of St George with its golden domes, five little golden domes. And a few years ago they, there had been a hoarding up there showing what it would look like when it was finished. And it must have been just recently finished when that bombardment took place. And immediately, of course, the windows were broken and the parish centre next door was burnt down. And I noticed yesterday, March 30th, I noticed that uh, there was another building on fire there, but the little golden domes of St George's were still there, at least. I feel this is a terrible thing to do in itself. I mean, any Christian would regard it as a crime against God directly, but also it's a terrible thing to do to people because it's part of their lives. To them, the church is a sort of place that they can resort to, they can all go to, and they regard the holy icons there and the patron saints as part of the family. So to really to destroy that is to destroy part of their lives. And your eminence, as the head of the Greek Orthodox Church in Great Britain and Ireland, what has it been like for you uh, reading about uh, the destruction of the cities in Ukraine, but particularly the religious buildings? Uh, First of all, thank you for this opportunity Let me start by saying the destruction and catastrophe is beyond what people see and can imagine. Because when you speak of buildings, houses of worship, places of worship, we usually think of of churches, synagogues, and on down the line. But you have to know that at least in the Orthodox tradition, there are countless chapels throughout cities, small ones, even in homes, hospitals, and various other places, those chapels which remain unknown to most people. 
Let us also remember the places and houses of worship that are not those with golden domes or some other sort of structure to be identified as a place of worship. So we're talking about edifices, buildings, structures, many more than people know and many more than people can count. So along with the beautiful churches are the small chapels, the shrines, and a monastery, for example, may have a, within it a dozen small churches. And then, of course, the non-Orthodox places of worship. Let's not forget them. Christopher, what does this mean for Putin's reputation? As you point out in your piece, he sort of presented himself as the defender of Christianity to Russia. So what? how does it look if he's actually destroying churches? Well, I think this is one reason why we should be aware of it. Because I was asking somebody who works in charity, which is involved in good work helping people in Ukraine, and they weren't really aware that this was going on. And indeed, they said, you know, Vladimir Putin wouldn't want a picture of a destroyed church to go around the world because it would destroy his unconvincing image of a man who stands by the Russian Orthodox Church. So it's not good for him. And I, f I find that there's a horrible echo here. You know that theatre in Mariupol where people were sheltering and it, it took a week to find out how many had been estimated to be killed, about 300 as far as we know. Well, that was built in 1960 in rather traditional style, but it was built on the site of the Church of St. Mary Magdalene, which had, an old Orthodox church had been there for a long time. But it was knocked down in the 1930s under the Soviet authorities. And this is a pattern that's appeared again and again in Ukraine. And it's something, really, that the Russian regime ought to live down. They shouldn't repeat it. And your eminence, uh, Christopher mentioned there that Putin likes to position himself as a defender of the Orthodox Church. I wanted to get your thoughts about Patriarch Kirill of Moscow's endorsement of, of Putin's invasion. And it seems, at least uh, here from a sort of Western perspective, that the Russian Orthodox Church is, is, is sticking by Putin as much as Putin is sticking by the, the, the Russian Orthodox Church. I, I want to get your, your views on that, if I may. Let me make a clear statement first, that the Ecumenical Patriarch and the Patriarchate have been very outspoken against the invasion and any type of aggression. There is no expression of a just war in the Orthodox tradition. There is no understanding of this concept. I think it very sad that the Russian Orthodox Church has not come out with an official statement to say, stop, put down the arms, let's be scriptural, let us take our swords and bend them into plowshares. Let us follow the words of Christ and the gospel. Let there be peace amongst you. For every problem, there is a solution. And the church should take the leadership and say, we will help find the solution because we are people of faith and belief and hope. And the church should guide Putin 
the patriarch may choose to take the initial steps. I'm talking about the patriarch of Russia. The patriarch may take, choose to take the first steps, and I'm sure people will follow him. And we need to follow the proper leadership, which leads to world peace, not only for Orthodox, for non-Orthodox alike, because we as human beings do not have the right to take life. We're here to strengthen and support and give love and understanding and cooperation. And we do that together in unity and in solidarity. But to support efforts of invasion, war, not only in this case, but any case, is unacceptable. The Kiev Independent recently reported that more than 100 Ukrainian Orthodox communities have now formally uh, abandoned their allegiance to Moscow. What's your view on this uh, on this move? Is it is it? It seems to be rather significant, doesn't it? It is, and it just tells us that you suffer the consequences of your actions. People want positive and good leadership, especially in the church. We're here to pe- teach and to lead people on a Christian path, one of virtue, one of discipline, one of love, goodness, and on down the line, and our leadership must be that. It must be individuals, people, who not only preach Christ, but live Christ. Christopher, just to finish on, you say at the end of your piece that what is in peril now are not just churches and artworks, but other things. What what else seems to be at risk? Well, there's quite a lot at risk, really. The example I had in mind was at Chernihiv, where an old archive of the Secret Service of all people Uh, was destroyed by Russian bombardment. This matters because it had in it records which were nowhere else of the Soviet oppression of Ukrainians in the 1930s and then the Nazi atrocities against people in that part of the world during the Second World War. And it seems to me that this is a witness to truth. I mean, it's a sort of dumb witness to truth until people read it. But if you destroy those old records, then you're not going to get them back again. And it undermines the whole civilization that we've been talking about, that it's not just a question of architecture. It's a question of places that people use in their culture to worship God and the cultural resources which underpin a whole civilization. And if there's one thing that we've learned from this war... It's the richness of Ukrainian culture. Christopher and Your Eminence, thank you very much for joining us. And finally, it's the 40-year anniversary of the war between the UK and Argentina over the Falklands. And in this week's Spectator, Robert Taylor writes about the impact that conflict still has on the territory. He joins us now, along with Marcelo G. Cohen, a native Argentinian and professor of international law of the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies. Robert, this week marks the 40th anniversary of the invasion of the Falkland Islands. Why now, in the context of the invasion of Ukraine, is the conflict especially pertinent? Well, I think the people of the Falkland Islands feel a particular empathy with the people of Ukraine, uh, because it is exactly 40 years ago that the same thing happened to them, that they were invaded by a country, um, a different country, a foreign country, in the case of the Falklands, just to the west. 
and their way of life was overturned for two months. It was a brief war because the invader was then uh, beaten by the British forces who were sent down. But it was an extremely unpleasant time for the people of the Falklands. They suffered a lot in those two months. There was a horrible event in Goose Green, which is a small community to the south of the main East Falkland, where a 100 men, women and children were shoved into a tiny community hall at gunpoint and kept there in intolerable conditions for an entire month. They had one toilet between them, not much drinking water. Uh, It was really awful. And and then, of course, they were liberated. So this was uh, a war that caused immense hardship. And the people I've spoken to, who were children at the time, uh, down in the Falklands, are still, I think, scarred by the events. And they remember it well. And the 40th anniversary, therefore, is particularly pertinent anyway. But given events in Ukraine... I think, even more pertinent. Marcelo, in Robert's article, he says that the islands are still coveted in Argentina with one-eyed vision of history that is as warped as Putin's view of Ukraine. How would you respond to that? Do you think that that is a fair comparison? No, uh, I think uh, that the comparison of the Falklands-Malvinas War in 1982 with uh, what is happening in Ukraine uh, today is totally unjustified. It's an exaggeration. And I would even say that it is an offense to the Ukrainian people, because uh, when you see uh, the killings, the bombings, the destructions of cities, villages in Ukraine today, and you compare this with what happened in uh, 1982 in the South Atlantic, this is a complete exaggeration. I consider that the use of force by Argentina, by the Argentinian dictatorship, was a breach of international law, irrespective of who is right and who is uh, wrong on the sovereignty dispute. uh, And I also understand, uh, obviously, that no one would like to be involved in the middle of an armed conflict. And I'm not denying that the situation of the inhabitants of the islands during the time uh, was difficult, but uh, the instructions given to the Argentine uh, task force that uh, took uh, the islands in April 1982 uh, were to avoid any casualty, not only of civilians, but even of British soldiers. And the only person who died during the Argentine operation was an Argentine official who was killed by the British forces present in the islands. And the instructions were that any action against the populations would be severely punished. So there was not a single rape, no violence against islanders as, uh, uh, as uh, it was mentioned by, by Robert Taylor. I know uh, his reference to Uh, what happened in Goose Green, which is a very, very tiny location in the islands. And I know, uh, I visited the islands, Uh, I I spoke, I have been speaking with people in the islands for many, many years. So this was a very, very uh, small location. So all the civilians were located in, in the town hall. It is true, during the hostilities, they were there uh, for one month, and of course, that was not a, a very nice situation. 
but uh, I, I wonder what would have happened if they would have been allowed to remain in their uh, homes during the, the fight and the bombings uh, between the Argentine and, and the British forces. Uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross considered that the provisions of the Geneva Conventions of 1949 were largely respected by both parties. And some people call this war the last gentleman's war. So if you compare the manner in which the inhabitants of the islands were treated during the war uh, with what happened later on in Iran, Iraq, in Afghanistan, in the former Yugoslavia, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you will see that this is a complete exaggeration and it is not the best manner to deal with this issue. W what is the situation? The situation is the United Nations uh, considers that uh, this is a territory that has to be decolonized and the manner to decolonize is to uh, settle the sovereignty dispute uh, between Argentina and the United Kingdom. The elite that uh, governs the islands uh, are unwilling to uh, discuss uh, the matter with Argentina. Uh, the British government says that uh, there will be no negotiations with Argentina uh, on sovereignty unless the islanders uh, request so. Uh, but the fact is that this is a breach of the international obligation to settle disputes through peaceful means. So uh, what is considered to be, uh, I think uh, someone in the islands spoke about uh, economic terrorism. Again, this is a, a blatant exaggeration and contradiction with the reality because Argentina proposed uh, air links between the mainland and the islands, uh, trade, etc., etc., and the position of the elite governing the islands is that they will not accept anything coming from Argentina. So uh, 40 years have lapsed, and I believe that the manner to react. Uh, when you have a problem, you can adopt three attitudes, either denying that there is a problem, or trying to live with the problem or trying to solve the problem. So uh, this denial of the existence of a sovereignty dispute create problems. And this is the main question. So we have to adopt a positive attitude and the positive attitude is to try to settle the dispute in a manner that would be respect, respectful of, of all uh, interests. And Robert, you've just been in the Falklands. How do, you, how do the islanders see it? Well, uh, bullies, bullies never think that they are the bully. Uh, they never see the consequences to the victim of their bullying. The Falklands only have 3,000 people. Uh, Argentina has about 40 million. It's a huge country against a tiny country. And the bullying is economic bullying. It's denying entry to ships uh, carrying the Falkland Islands flag into Argentinian ports. It's threatening oil executives with imprisonment. It's uh, encouraging other countries in uh, Latin America, South America, not to engage in trade with the Falkland Islanders, and then there are really silly things like landing athletes before the London Olympics on the Falklands to train uh, in a, just a silly, childish kind of a stunt, really. Forty years has lapsed, uh, Marcelo says, well, that's not a very long time when you were in the Falklands and were shoved at the end of a gun into a community hall 
with your fellow citizens. You could see your own homes out of the windows of that community hall being taken over by Argentinian soldiers. And let's just remember that the UN respects self-determination. And in 2013, the people of the Falkland Islands voted by over 99% in their referendum to remain British. They're not going to change their minds anytime soon, as anyone who has been to the Falkland Islands will know. And I can say also to anyone who says there's some kind of sovereignty dispute, why should the Falkland Islanders change their mind? There was an attempt to subjugate them, their peaceful way of life, just 40 years ago. They're not going to change their minds. Why should they? They want to remain British. The UN respects self-determination and they will remain British as a result. Marcelo, what's your view on Robert's point there about the 2013 referendum? Shouldn't that have resolved the issue? Of course not. That was not a referendum organised by the United Nations, uh, supervised by the United Nations, or even accepted by the United Nations. Uh, No one changed its position after this uh, self Uh, satisfaction referendum, because self-determination, of course, is a fundamental principle of international law, but it doesn't mean that any population, any community has the right to self-determination. And this is clear. All General Assembly resolutions dealing with the Falklands Malvinas, they have never employed the principle uh, in order to be applicable to the islands. So there are many situations in the world in which uh, you you have a population within a given state, for instance, and it doesn't mean that uh, uh, if there is a referendum, uh, the matter is settled. Is is this the the case with regard to Crimea, for instance? The Russians organized a referendum there. But uh, uh, does it mean that the population of Crimea has the right to self-determination? No. So the inhabitants of the islands have individual and collective rights, but they don't have the right to decide a sovereignty dispute between Argentina and the United Kingdom. That's the point. Who do you think should decide that? The dispute must be settled between Argentina and the United Kingdom, as it is requested by the General Assembly resolutions of the United Nations, taking into account the interest of the inhabitants. Uh, but it is not for the British citizens of the islands to decide a, a dispute between the UK and Argentina. That's as is, it is as simple as that. Robert, do you want to respond to that? Well, I think it's the most extraordinary comparison I've ever heard, Marcelo. I have to say, you're comparing a referendum freely organised by the people of the Falkland Islands in 2013. They all turned out to vote. It was organised by them. It was their idea. Over 99% of them decided to stay British. I think there was something like three people in the entire island who decided not to. And you're comparing that to Crimea, where the Russians invaded and then carried out a referendum at the butt of a gun. I think it's, it's an absurd comparison. You were saying earlier on, Marcelo, that my comparison of subjugation of the Falkland Islands by the Argentinians was in an incorrect comparison with Ukraine. The point I was making, of course, was was that a big bully subjugates a people. But your comparison of the referendum in Crimea to the the Falkland Islands referendum is offensive and absurd. 
well, Robert and Marcelo, uh, I'm afraid we are out of time, but thank you very much, both of you, for joining us. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to The Spectator to read the articles we discussed on the podcast? And if you subscribe today, you'll also get a £20 Amazon gift voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk slash voucher. I'm William Moore. And I'm Laura Prendergast. And we do hope you'll join us again next week.